0: Welcome to Putting Up Numbers, the podcast about uniform numbers. Here we break down the stories behind the numbers, talk about the all-time greats that made the number iconic, and give you our picks for the uniform number Hall of Fame and Hall of Shame. You can also hit us up at puttingupnumbers.com and give us your picks. I'm Tom Davis here in the City of Angels, and joining me from Dallas, he's always rocking skinny jeans, but he's never eaten Goya beans, is Rudy Klanek. Rudy, what's today's number?
1: Our number is number 89, and why 89, you ask? Is because we got the privilege to sit down with the great Steve Smith Sr., and he will actually explain the senior part later, but we had a really cool interview with him, former uh, Carolina Panther, Baltimore Raven, and now NFL Network analyst. But hey, man, before we get into 89, I have some number news that's really interesting and actually late-breaking. Late-breaking regard- number news, yes. not
0: Clannix Corner, not Rudy's Roundup.
1: Number news, back again. What do you got? It's baseball number news regarding the number ah. 89. So, as Timely. they always do, the New York Yankees have made news. The Yankees called up pitcher Miguel Yajure and gave him the number 89. And according to Baseball Reference... That is the first time in baseball history, Major League Baseball history, that a player has worn number 89. Zero through 99 has now been spoken for. And the Yankees, as they often do, had made baseball history by handing him the number 89. And not only that, but Miguel got to throw some innings for the Yankees. So he's official, man. He's Moonlight Graham. He's in the book. He's in the big book forever. Number 89 has an official appearance in a Major League game. And that's number news that you can use, man. That's big stuff.
0: So congratulations to Miguel Yajure of the New York Yankees for wearing number 89 and knowing the Yankees and the way that they retire numbers. His number will probably be retired by the end of the week or maybe next week. <laughs> probably. And he'll be out there in Monument Valley or Monument whatever the hell they call it. <laughs> but yeah, let's bring in Steve Smith Sr., huh? It was a great interview yep. with him. He's a lot of fun, right? Yeah,
1: he was great. He's great. He's a real affable guy. We've seen him on the field getting in fights with pretty much every defensive back in the NFL. So we had a little trepidation before we jumped on the call with him. But right when we jumped on the call with him, he had a big smile on his face and he was awesome. So uh, let her rip.
0: Yeah, let's do this. Here's our interview with myself, Rudy, and Steve Smith Sr. Today's guest is one of the most prolific NFL receivers in the past 20 years. Steve Smith Sr. played 16 seasons for the Panthers and Ravens and was a five-time Pro Bowl selection and three-time All-Pro. He practically owns the Panthers record books as their all-time leader in touchdowns, receptions and receiving yards and as a member of the team's hall of honor. He's also in the NFL's all-time top 10 in career all-purpose yards and receiving yards and since he retired in 2016 he's moved to the NFL Network where you can see him on Thursday night football coverage as well as NFL total access. He remains active in his community through the Steve Smith Family Foundation and we're happy to have him here today. Steve, Welcome to Putting Up Numbers. Appreciate it. How you guys doing? doing good. Doing well. Doing well. So, Steve, number 89. Yeah. Uh, wide receivers in the NFL don't want to wear numbers in the 80s anymore. How did number 89 come your way?
2: It's interesting. In college, I wore seven. So, I wanted number 87 because uh, I couldn't wear seven in the league. And so, I wanted 87. And at the time, it was a pretty prolific pro bowler named Musim Muhammad, who was, I believe, in his eighth or ninth year, who just didn't want to come out of the number. <laughs> and me being a young, arrogant, confident young man, third round draft pick, I asked him for his number and he politely told me to go kick rocks. <laughs> and, but leading up to that, there was a gentleman named Ray Caruth who went to prison and as well documented what happened but that was the last number that he was in. And so that was a number they kind of gave to players that just were in for a little bit for three or four games or maybe a season and a half. And I'm like, I, I don't want that number. Please don't give me that number. And I walk in and that's the number I have, number 89. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, I wore it and I was thankful to be on the squad and all that stuff. But if I'm being honest, I didn't want to be associated with an act so gruesome And that number, that's what people, you know, people's perception is reality, whether we like it or not. And um, I feel like it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths across the sports world, but also across the Carolinas because it impacted so many former teammates. The trial was very, it, it is what it was. So at the time, the team president, Mark Richardson, who I still have a great relationship. I have a great relationship with the Richardsons to this day. I had lunch with him, and I asked him to switch my jersey. I said, you know, I don't like the number. I don't like the association of the number. Can I get a different number? And this is what changed why I kept 89 and why I take a lot of pride into it. He said, listen, you know what that number carries, the baggage. He said, but we were wanting, when we drafted you, we were hoping – that you can be the new face for that number. He said, I understand you don't like the number and I get it. He said, but that's the number that we've given players that haven't lasted. We're hoping that you can change that. So we gave you that number because we believe that you can change how people view that number. And then so after he says all that, he goes, well, if you want to change it, we'll change it. But this is why we gave you this number. And I was kind of like, you know, I was I was 20 when I got drafted. I barely turned 22. So I was maybe 23 years old. Still dumb, still naive, still self-centered. And in my (laughs) mind, I was like, that's great. Still don't want that damn number. Right. But also had an individual, the team president, that really was kind of basically telling me, hey, we're taking a shot on you and we'll hope you'll change it. And so. I really thought about it and I was like, wow, they didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't dance around it. He confronted the elephant in the room on why I didn't want the number. And he also admitted why they wanted to give me the number and what they had experienced and had to deal with behind closed doors with having that number as well through the community. So I took it and ran with it. And I believe that I'm the last player to ever wear that number here in Carolina. And that's the pride I have in it, and I love the number, and I, I love what it represents now. And then I had the cool thing as um, uh, Ray Cruz's son. He's been at the at the games a few times. His his grandmother, who takes care of him, and she does a fantastic job. She said something that was really cool. She said, you know, and it was kind of it threw me off. But she said, you know, you're wearing his daddy's number, and I was like, wow. So they noticed it, but it was just really cool that she acknowledged that, and they still have that association. Yeah. So it was it was very much, uh, I believe, in the long run, well worth wearing the number.
1: Well, that's a great story, man. Yeah, you're probably the last person for Carolina Panthers going to be wearing 89. I hope so. If they, if they give it the they 89, give it, you're close listen, by. It, you're going to drive I'm over there. there.
2: <laughs> they get that number. I'm not into that. Hey, do you mind? Hell no, no. I do mind if you wear my number. <laughs> hey don't you think me cool no i do not
1: (laughs) (laughs) no that's officially off the table
2: If I'm being honest, I still would go with a higher number just because, you know, the way I was raised, you know, with my grandparents, I'm old, I'm old that old fashioned. So I, yep. I looked at a higher number as an honor. Like some guys think it's ugly, it's too big, it's this or that. But when I look at the players, when I look at Tim Brown, Jay Rice, John Taylor, Carl Pickens, uh, Henry Eller, all of these guys that when I grew up, looking at football as football players and wide receivers Jerry Rice Chris Carter all these guys they were in the 80s right and that's how I look at a wide receiver for me that's that's the way I was raised I was raised old school that's the way I played Uh, that's the way I parent that's the way I kind of operate now is you know your word means something you know you show up on time you be respectful that kind of goes into his, his ball as well you know higher numbers mean that you're a special player you know
0: Speaking of parenting, Steve, you were one of the first players to have senior on your back. Yes. Our friend Chad Steele had mentioned that there's kind of an interesting story of how you finally got to have senior on your back. Can you tell us that story? At the
2: time I was being released with the Panthers, at the time I was doing it, it was a legal ramification, which is they had stock of all my jerseys through the league. And so you have heard, probably had a storage where you have to buy yep. the jerseys. Well, I knew I was being released. So I went through the process of buying my jerseys. But once I got released, because I was going through a new team, I could do whatever I want. But I went through the legal process with lawyers and all that stuff. And I actually had to sign paperwork through the lead to get senior added on to it mm-hmm. as a Carolina Panther. So I got it as a Carolina Panther. I knew I was getting released, and I still bought the whole stockpile of the store. And so when the floodgates went to go buy my jersey at the facility, at the team store after my release, they couldn't because all the jerseys were in my basement. <laughs> so I earned all the jerseys. I, I, I had all the jerseys. And then when I went to Baltimore, I already had the paperwork, so I gave it to them, which grandfathered to the Baltimore Ravens. But what's funny is now the Panthers actually have to get my permission. They actually have to negotiate with me personally, Steve Smith, Sr. And there's a contract between me, Steve Smith, Sr., Fanatics, and then Fanatics and the Panthers. And so there has to be a a mutual agreement. And then there's a financial agreement of how we divvy up the money. So every time they sell my jersey, they have to renegotiate a deal with me because the last deal I negotiated with them was for the Hall of Honor, and they were only allowed to sell my jersey for that amount of time. And once that stockpile went out, they have to seek my permission again in another financial agreement amongst me, Fnatic, and the Panthers to be able to sell my jerseys in the team store. So
0: you can make us a good deal on a Steve Smith Carolina Panthers jersey is what you're telling us.
2: I can make you a great deal, but they have to talk to me first. And I get to it when I get to it. it does, you do not move up the chain of stuff that I have to do.
1: That's awesome. I love it. You've obviously made the adjustment or continue to make the adjustment into your broadcasting role. What's yeah. What's been the biggest, I guess, learning curve for you as you uh, put the headset on at, at NFL Network?
2: It's a ton of things. It's understanding how to study Understand it as a former player, what may intrigue you as a former player does not mean that intrigues, one, the viewer, two, your show producer, right, or, or, or that network that you're working for because sometimes, especially players, we get lost in the numbers. So one of the things I always look at when I look at corners, I base their how good of a corner are they is based on what is the percentage when targeted. And so they'll be like, oh man, this guy's a lockdown corner. And I'm like, Yeah, he he's not a lockdown, he's a gambler. Like there'll be guys that I look at I look at the film and then I look at this their numbers and I'm like, This this guy can't you can't be locked down if you're targeted. Whenever you're targeted, there's a sixty seven percent chance that the receiver will catch the ball. I mean, that's that's not lockdown, right? to, to me, that's You know, you telling me if I if I go into a job interview and there's a 67 percent chance, even though I'm underqualified, that I'll get the job. I'm like, I'll take those numbers. Right. (laughs) You know, so uh, so, you know, just understanding and getting a feel for what is uh, what is the appetite of the consumer, but also, you know, staying true Mm -hmm. to who I am um, as a football player, as an analyst. Um, and also just speaking the truth, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the guys, sometimes most of the guys receive my criticism very well. Some of them are uh, getting their feelings a little bit, and that's been tough to navigate because I understand how difficult this game is, but also I'm not judging you because I dislike you. I'm judging you because I'm watching stats. I'm watching film.
0: Steve, you've been active in the community, involved in various charitable causes through the Steve Smith Family Foundation. Tell us about the foundation and just some of the initiatives that you guys are undertaking at this point.
2: We focus a lot on uh, domestic violence, the support around domestic violence. I do very, very little to, to none sports related stuff. We just focus on really just trying to be a voice for the voiceless. My mama's is a, is a survivor of domestic violence. And so that's my focal point. And then we have a medical clinic. We are up to 5,000 patients that we serve here in Charlotte. It's a free clinic. And then lately what we've been doing is teaming up with the Charlotte Mecklenburg School District. There's about five to 6,000 kids here locally in Charlotte that are homeless. And so we're dealing with that and helping them virtually learn. A great example, we just opened up a virtual academy for a hundred students to virtually learn with the support staff to help them through their virtual learning, which you and I both know. Sitting in front of a computer on your own is very difficult in itself. Um, now, try to teach a kindergartner, first grader, second grader to keep their attention, to sit and pay attention to a teacher who physically is not in front of them, is on a computer. Um, and then you also have the, the big elephant in the room, which is you can't stay focused when your stomach is growing. Mm-hmm. And so, also providing uh, meals for them as well. So, just f- providing a holistic uh, support system in this in, in this virus, is epidemic. But this virus, epidemic is really just opening eyes and seeing that the real virus is a corona. It's a poverty. Like right? the you know understanding what is really going on. Like right now, there's a statistic out there that the three months that low income kids generally don't read or write or, or or read books and study through the summer puts them literally those three months of doing no education puts them a year to two years behind a child who does read or write during the summer. Wow. So think about this. We've been in this pandemic slash poop show (laughs) for the last six months. So that is roughly putting them behind two to four years. Well, here's Mm -hmm. a statistic that a lot of people don't know when they don't have this education and we don't open up schools back to face, face to face and helping them head on, you have now lifetime earnings. They will have 4% less in lifetime earnings because of this lack of education. That's a huge gap. And that means that the, the gap of poverty, the gap of middle class, upper class becomes wider and wider to the point of where these kids who turn 16, 17, when they become adults, what are they going to do? They're going to drop out of school because they're trying to climb, climb Mount Everest in flip flops. And it's not possible.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a great thing you're doing, Steve, and congratulations on the success of the Steve Smith family foundation real quickly, before we get you out of here, what should we look for this NFL season? It's going to be different. Obviously, do you have a favorite player, a favorite team, something we should be keeping an eye on any kind of little quick thing that we should uh, be paying attention to? That is a great question.
2: Well, one, it's really going to be different for everyone. And two, you know, everybody wants to have these predictions Bro, we haven't even watched the game. Like, we don't know <laughs> who's going to be good, who's going to be bad. But we know some teams that are right now in the media, they're showing you they're going to be pretty piss poor and they're still going to be dysfunctional like the Jacksonville Jaguars. I mean, what are they doing, right? If you're you talking about Captain Screw-Up, right? I mean, they are leading, they are leading the Screw-Up Bad News Bears candidate trophy <laughs> In all regard, and then who do they get to put the cherry on top? They get Jay Gruden. He left one team, and he's screwing it up for down there. And then they're they're letting guys go. I mean, this is an organization that um, honestly it's a struggle to watch. I mean, it's like it's like going to the dentist with no laughing gas, nothing. I mean, you just straight getting the root canal raw. No, no medication. It's gonna be painful. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, Steve, we appreciate the time. Thanks very much, and best of luck this year. We'll be checking you out on Thursday nights. No problem. Thanks, Steve. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Our thanks again to Steve Smith Sr., Rudy. That was a ton of fun, right?
1: That was great. He was a ton of fun, really informative. I'd I'd love to talk football with him longer, but some really good answers about why he chose number 89. That was cool.
0: Yes, sir. Well, let's dive into it, huh, Rudy? We've got football and hockey mostly here in the number 89 count. Let me start with a few sentimental favorites. We're not going to go deep on many of these, if any of them, but Just a few sentimental favorites, guys who wore number 89 on the gridiron. John Mackey, who made number 88 famous with the Baltimore Colts, great tight end with them in the Hall of Fame in 1992. He played one season in San Diego in 1972 and wore number 89. Frank Wycheck, who also was a great tight end and was the guy who started the Music City Miracle. He was the guy who threw the pass. Yep. He belongs. Doug Baldwin, late of the Seattle Seahawks, made the famous butt catch in the <laughs> NFC Wild Card game against the Lions. A Santana Moss, Amari Cooper, and then some guys from our childhood, Rudy. Billy Joe Dupree with the Dallas Cowboys and Benny Cunningham with the Steelers. Those guys we saw on TV every week because those two teams were on TV every week. And then a college guy, Ross Browner from Notre Dame, four-year starter, two-time All-American, won the Outland Trophy and the Maxwell Award. He finished fifth in Heisman Trophy voting in 1977. Is in the College Football Hall of Fame, was a first-round pick of the Bengals, where he wore 79 instead of 89, and he played 10 years in the NFL. So those are sentimental guys. All deserve at least a tip of the cap. Rudy, you've got the honorable mention, folks. Who's on that list?
1: No surprise. We've got some great receivers. We've got Nat Moore, played 13 years, all with the Miami Dolphins. Pro bowler, uh, all pro in 77. He played for, you know, caught balls from both Bob Greasy and Dan Marino. And he was actually NFL Man of the Year in 1984. Nat Moore also made the helicopter catch that we always see on highlights. Otis Taylor, uh, your favorite Kansas City Chiefs. Played 11, 11 years all with the Chiefs. Won a Super Bowl and two AFL championships. Interestingly, once was assaulted by Jack Del Rio who actually thought he was a replacement player during the strike. Really? Yeah. So Jack Del Rio tried to kill Otis Taylor because he thought he was busting the strike. That's interesting. Mark Bavaro, a, a giant legend for sure at tight end. Didn't say a lot, but man, he was a great player for them. A pro bowler, Super Bowl champ in New York. Also wore a couple other numbers when he was with Cleveland and Philadelphia, but he's in the Giants ring of honor as number 89 for sure. And then last on the honorable mention list, one of my favorites as a kid was uh, Wes Chandler. Wes Chandler was a tremendous receiver for the University of Florida and uh, then became a, a really good uh, NFL receiver for three teams, really two prominently. The New Orleans Saints and the San Diego Chargers finished it up in San Francisco, but a four-time pro bowler. Won a Super Bowl with the 49ers. Wasn't the huge impact there, but man, when he was with the Chargers and they were lighting the scoreboard up, Wes Chandler was everywhere. He was a great player. So that's our honorable mention. Our contenders for best 89s in football history, the guy we talked to, Steve Smith Sr., as we mentioned, five-time Pro Bowler, actually won the receiving Triple Crown in 2005. He led the NFL in catches, touchdowns, and receiving yards. He also was a comeback player of the year. Man, he's seventh all time in receiving yards and all purpose yards. He's a Panther Hall of Honor member and at five foot nine and 195 pounds, one of the toughest sons of guns in the history of the game. Steve Smith Sr. You feel like that's a pretty good contender, Tom? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I think Steve Smith Sr. definitely belongs on this list, and we might likely hear him again when we get to the Hall of Fame. Who else is on the list?
1: Yeah, another pass catcher, the great Mike Ditka, played 11 of his 12 seasons in 89 for Chicago, Philadelphia, and Dallas, obviously became a famous head coach, and Chicago claims him as their one of their favorite sons for sure. So Steve Smith and, and Mike Dick are two really good receivers in the contenders list. And we got two awesome defenders as well. So we got Dave Robinson. He played 12 years for the Packers and Redskins, three-time pro bowler, won three NFL championships and a pair of Super Bowls. So he's a great contender, as is Gino Marchetti. Gino Marchetti is a great contender. Uh, Even though you or I have never seen him play, but it doesn't matter because he's awesome. Because look at these numbers, man. Defensive end, 11-time Pro Bowler, 7-time All-Pro, 2-time NFL champ, part of the 50th, part of the 75th, and part of the 100th anniversary NFL All-Time teams. He's one of the greats. He's definitely going to end up on the final list when we start arguing the top five all time, but uh, that's a good list. Obviously, football dominates the number 89, but let's not leave our other sports out of it. Let's talk a little uh, hockey, because we got a good one in hockey.
0: Yeah, let's talk a little hockey. Uh, First, uh, an honorable mention, a guy named Mike Comrie. Mike wore 89 at the University of Michigan, Rudy, uh, also with Edmonton, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Ottawa, and the New York Islanders. He also wore 91 and 19 in a 10 year career and is maybe best known for marrying Hillary Duff. So nice job <laughs> out of you, Mike Comrie. Nice work for marrying Hillary Duff. And then our contender is Alexander Mogilny. Alexander Mogilny wore number 89 to signify the year he defected from Russia. The Buffalo Sabres, ironically, also picked him with the 89th pick in the draft. He was the first player at that point in the NHL's history to wear number 89. Many players have worn it since then, and we'll talk about many of them in the heat check. He wore it throughout a 16-year career with Buffalo, Vancouver, New Jersey and Toronto. He's a two-time All-Star. He won the Lady Bing Trophy, which is the best sportsmanship in the NHL. He also scored over a 1,000 points and did that in 990 career games. So Alexander Mulgilney, we might hear that name yet again. And then basketball, there's really only two in basketball and neither one of them wore number 89 for more than a year. One is Lou Amundsen who wore number 89 with the Cleveland Cavaliers in 2015. The other one is actually a Hall of Famer. Clyde Lavalette wore 89 his rookie year with the Minneapolis Lakers, later made number 34 famous, and 34 was actually retired by the Minneapolis Lakers. But the Los Angeles Lakers don't recognize the Minneapolis Lakers' retired numbers. So a guy named Shaquille O'Neal, who only a few people know, came out and he wore number 34 in LA and number 34 is retired for Mr. O'Neill. So there you go. Clyde Lovellette and Lou Amundson in basketball, Alexander Mogilney and Mike Comrie in hockey. And Rudy, I understand we have a NASCAR guy as well, correct? We do.
1: We do. We have um, one NASCAR guy, Buck Baker. Um, He had two wins in the 89 car in 1964. He's probably most famously known as the father of Buddy Baker. Buddy won 19 yep. races over a long career, 33 years, including winning the 1980 Daytona 500. So the Baker boys, father and son, Hall of Famers, that's an other, but it's a NASCAR guy, so that's great. Guess what time it is? It's screen stars time, and we've got it's some time. good guys yeah. in here, man. <laughs> yeah.
0: So screen stars, there are only three this time, Rudy, so you don't have to really sit through a long diatribe. One of them we're basically going to skim right over because it's Terry Crews. <laughs> he wore number 89 in the remake of The Longest Yard, which is something that never should have happened. Never. In my mind, it never did happen. I have no idea what his character's name was, and I don't care. So we're mentioning Terry Crews because I like Terry Crews because he's in Brooklyn 99. And he did play in the NFL, but that movie was an abomination, and Adam Sandler should never be able to act again got, as a result of remaking that movie.
1: I've got bad news for you. I've got bad news. So my 16 year old son was watching this on probably TNT or TBS or wherever it runs on every weekend it seems, and he likes it. And I told him, no, 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 this, this isn't the longest yard. The longest yards with Burt Reynolds and Ray Nitschke and he said, yeah, no, this is funnier. So we're losing, Tom. We're losing, man.
0: Well, youth is apparently wasted on the young if your son <laughs> thinks that movie is even remotely funny. Sweet Lord, what are you teaching him? I know. That's what are you fault. doing that's as I, a parent I blame if, myself. if your son thinks that the remake it's terrible. of Longest Yard?
1: It's, it's uh, Michael awful. Irvin was funny. It's, Michael Irvin. I can't. Yeah, sweet I Lord. I know. I get it.
0: Uh, I'm I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the Klannik family. That's Let's entirely. go to number
1: two. Let's uh, go to number two.
0: Anyway, number two, Fred Dreyer. We actually found no record of Fred Dreyer wearing number 89 on TV, but he was number 89 with the Rams for many, many years. Yeah. So we're going to assume that he wore number 89 at some point in TV. He was the star of the TV series Hunter. He was Rick Hunter yep. on the eponymous And I love saying the word eponymous, the eponymous series, which ran from 1984 to 1991. Fred Dreyer, 13 years in the NFL with the Giants and the Rams, the only player in NFL history, Rudy, to have two safeties in
1: one game. Nice. Good job, Fred Dreyer.
0: Fred Dreyer's number two. Number one, Ralph Macchio as Daniel LaRusso in The Karate Kid wearing a San Diego Chargers West Chandler jersey while he's getting beaten about the head and shoulders. (laughs) By, by the Cobra Kai. Daniel LaRusso, Ralph Macchio, you are the number 89 screen star legend for Karate Kid from 1984. So there you go. Terry Crews, Fred Dreyer, and Ralph Macchio. And that's screen stars. And of course, we have the Derek Rose Award. The Derek Rose Award, for those of you who are uninitiated, is a career that was cut short for something other than poor play. So maybe it was injuries, maybe it was drugs, maybe it was the law, whatever it might be. The Derrick Rose Award symbolizes a career that could have been great, but maybe was only good as a result of something befalling that player. And Rudy, who do we have as our Derek Rose Award recipient this week?
1: Well, we have a guy that actually um, checks all those boxes. Unfortunately for him, it's David Boston. Eighth overall pick by the Cardinals coming out of the Ohio State University. He was supposed to be all-world, and he was a little bit. He was an all-pro Talent. He showed it on the field. He had 2,000 yard seasons for the Cardinals, signed a big deal, big money deal with the San Diego Chargers in 2003, but then immediately, almost immediately, got an altercation with the Chargers strength coach and was promptly traded to the Miami Dolphins for a six rounder. Played five games in Miami. He did change numbers at that time. So he went from 89 to 80 but then had battled two knee injuries and a positive steroid test. Never good. So signed with the Buccaneers in 06, but wait for it. Yes, he got a DUI with the box and was promptly released. Played a game in the Canadian Football League in 2008 and finally called it quits because of a recurring Foot injury. He did have scrapes with the law. 2002, 2004, 2007, 2011. This guy had all the potential in the world, but unfortunately, just just went the wrong way in a bunch of different ways. So, he defines the Derek Rose Award. Maybe we rename it the David Boston Award. We have to get a <laughs> um, get a judge judgment out of that one. But anyway, David Boston's our Derek Rose Award winner. Now let's get to Hall of Shame. Hall of Shame, we've got three guys, one of whom Steve Smith Sr. talked a ton about, which was Ray Carruth, and that story is yep. well documented. Ray Carruth, for all that was said before in the interview, is Definitely on the Hall of Shame.
0: Other guys on the list, Rudy, uh, Brian Blades, who you may remember, his brothers Al and Benny were both NFL cornerbacks. He won two national championships at Miami, played his entire 11 year career with the Seahawks, was an all pro, and also made a Pro Bowl, was NFL Man of the Year in 1995, and then was charged with second degree murder in the shooting death of his cousin. And he claimed that the pistol that unfortunately killed his cousin, discharged accidentally. And his lawyer, in some Perry Mason-type stuff, actually staged a fake struggle with the gun loaded with blanks in the courtroom while defending Brian Blades. And the gun, in fact, did discharge accidentally while he was doing that in the courtroom. And so Brian Blades got off. He was convicted of manslaughter, and then that was overturned by the judge and overturned on appeal. So Brian Blades, he is in the Hall of Shame, but only spending a, you know, he's just passing through, as set. is our next guy, <laughs> J.K. McKay.
1: I'm going to put, wait, I'm going to, I'm going to put an asterisk. His lawyer may be on our contenders list.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the lawyer. I don't know who that guy was, but, but, but Man, way to go, dude. that's amazing. Uh, and our last guy is J.K. McKay. He and Pat Hayden were co-MVPs of the 1975 Rose Bowl He started for three years in Tampa Bay for his father, John, and John said of landing his son, I had a rather distinct advantage in signing him. I was sleeping with his mother, (laughs) which I thought was pretty darn funny. J.K. McKay had a pretty nondescript NFL career, 41 catches in three years. Steve Spurrier supposedly believed that McKay was being played ahead of better players because he was the coach's son. And so apparently threw passes over the middle in an attempt to get J.K. McKay injured. So maybe Steve Spurrier actually is the guy who belongs on the Hall of Shame list, more so than J.K. McKay. But nonetheless, J.K. McKay is on the list.
1: The ball coach. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Indictment. Yeah, the ball coach. That's a tough one. Yeah, That's a tough one. And and it wasn't
0: like the ball coach was good as an NFL player. So I'm not sure why he needed You know, elite talent around him. It wasn't like he was elite in any way, shape, or form. Uh, But anyway, we'll talk about the ball coach, I guess, when we get to number 11 at some point. Let's jump into the heat check. And I'll I'll start here just because there's a lot of hockey guys. And I know you're Mr. Hockey. There are eight guys on the list. Number eight would be Alex Tuck. He's a big forward for the Las Vegas Knights he got number 89 as a seven-year-old because it was the biggest jersey. Number seven, Sam Gagné. Sam Gagné has worn 89 throughout his 13-year career in the NHL, except for one season in Arizona. 89 is the number that he had in junior hockey. And thus far in the 21st century, he is one of only two players to score eight points in a game, four goals and four assists. Vance McDonald said it wasn't a suggestion when he was drafted by Jim Harbaugh in San Francisco. He's a big tight end. And it's a nod to Mike Ditka. This is his eighth year playing. He's in Pittsburgh now, but he was with the 49ers. He's 6'4", 267 pounds, and for some reason played slot receiver at Rice. Uh, Number five on the list, Mikel Bodker. He's a hockey player. He took number 89 in juniors because someone had number eight. And 89 is the year that he was born uh, when he got drafted by Arizona. He was the highest drafted Danish player in history and none other than Wayne Gretzky, the great one, said, you're keeping your number. You're going to keep 89. And so he's kept 89 throughout a 12-year career with Arizona, Colorado, San Jose, and Ottawa. So Mikkel Bodker belongs on the list, as does Mark Andrews. Mark Andrews of the Baltimore Ravens made the Pro Bowl last year in his second season. He caught 64 balls at tight end. So Mark Andrews getting passes from Lamar Jackson, somebody to keep an eye on, as is Tyler Higbee. Tyler Higbee had 69 receptions last year in his fourth season with the Rams. So Tyler Higbee, number three, number two, Pavel Bouchenevich. Nicely done. Pavel Bouchenevich. Another Russian guy wearing number 89. He's worn number 89 for four seasons with the Rangers. He's been a bit up and down. If you talk to Ranger fans, they kind of wish that he would fulfill the promise that he has. There are some people who think he could be a 70-point-per-season scorer, but he's not that yet. So, Pavel is number two. And number one, the ancient one, Mercedes Lewis. Has worn number eighty-nine throughout a fifteen-year career with Jacksonville and Green Bay. He's a big tight end. He won the Mackey Award as college football's top tight end at UCLA, where he played with future Jaguars teammate and current broadcaster Maurice Jones-Drew. They were drafted on the same day, and Maurice Jones-Drew hasn't run a play in the NFL in a good long time, and yet Mercedes Lewis is still getting it done. So he's number one on the list. Which brings us, Rudy. To the Hall of Fame.
1: That number five, Dave Robinson. Really a precursor to what we experienced with Lawrence Taylor in terms of size and speed, somewhat of an athletic freak, especially for his era. Six foot four, 240, ran a 4'6. Um, that's amazing. Again, in that era, especially much like LT made famous, wearing number 56. Big Dave Robinson, wearing his 89, was a, was a Hall of Fame talent and an all-decade team guy in the 60s. So Dave Robinson comes in at number five. How about number four?
0: Number four, the aforementioned Alexander Mogilny, sort of the full package of speed, finesse, skill, quickness. Players like Matt Sundin, Sergei Fedorov, Pat LaFontaine said that Mogilny was the best player they ever played with. He won a Stanley Cup in 2000 when he was in New Jersey, which made him a member of the Triple Gold Club, which means he won an Olympic gold medal, he won a world championship, and he won a Stanley Cup. There are only 29 members of that club. So Alexander Mogilny comes in at number four. Who's number three, Rudy?
1: I think we have arguably a tie for two slash three. I'm going to say Steve Smith Sr. and Mike Ditka, can't really separate those two. They're both phenomenal. 16 seasons in the NFL for Smith with the Carolina Panthers, Baltimore Ravens. We've talked a ton about them. 35th player in NFL history to eclipse 10,000 receiving yards. Tough as a nail. And I think what's going to be really fun is to watch him as an analyst. I think he has the opportunity to be what a lot of former players aren't, you know, insightful, (laughs) (laughs) critical of some of the current players, and truthful about what goes on, you know, inside the lines, inside the meeting rooms. I hope the NFL Network lets him flex his muscles. But just in our quick conversation, you could tell there's a lot there. There's a lot that he can give. And I think if anybody's going to be an honest analyst for the NFL, it's going to be Steve Smith Sr. But on our list, like I said, I, I think a tie between him and Ditka is probably an order. Ditka being a you know Hall of Fame player and also a Hall of Fame coach and really defines the city of Chicago for many folks in Chicago. But Ditka and Tom Flores are the only people to win a Super Bowl as a player, an assistant coach and a head coach. That's pretty amazing. The Bears retired his 89 in 2013. His 89 is also retired by Pittsburgh, where he played college baseball and basketball and football. Pretty cool. And uh, Hall of member of the Hall of Fame a no brainer member of the Hall of Fame elected there in 1988. So that's kind of a tie for two and three. Who is number one on our list?
0: Number one is none other than Gino Marchetti. Rudy, we've talked a little bit about what he did on the field with the Colts, but he also fought in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II and played on the legendary 51 Dons team at the University of San Francisco, was voted the greatest defensive end in pro football history by the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1972. He was enshrined in the Hall of Fame in 1985 alongside USF teammate Ollie Matson which is the only time that's ever happened. Two guys who played on the same college team getting enshrined in the Hall of Fame on the same day. His 89 is retired by the Colts, and unfortunately, he just passed away last year. So Gino Marchetti is number one, the number one 89 of all time. So to recap the list, we have at number five, Dave Robinson, number four, Alexander Mogilney. We have a tie at number two between Steve Smith Sr. and Mike Ditka. And number one is Gino Marchetti. You feeling pretty good about that list?
1: Yeah, you had me. At, he fought in the Battle of the Bulge. So, you know, when you got when you put that on your resume, it, it's going to push you to the top. Man. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that's pretty awesome. And obviously a great player too. But man, he fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Fantastic. Good list and a, and a good number, a good football number for sure. And it was a fun interview with Steve. Absolutely.
0: And that'll do it for this edition of Putting Up Numbers. Remember, you can find show notes and more at our website, puttingupnumbers.com. Please, please tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review. It is appreciated. We'll be back soon with another edition. Until then, I'm Tom Davis. And I am Rudy Klanek. And we'll see you next time on Putting Up Numbers.